All right. This is kind of weird for us because it's August and we're starting a new quarter. This is the first time we've ever done this. So it's taking a little getting used to. But it does work out well because it lines up perfectly with the school system, which for Gwinnett County started back today. I think Buford City may have started back today as well. And all of our kids will more than likely be back in school by the end of this week. So that was the initiative behind uh, restructuring our quarters. So tonight starts the new fall quarter, and from henceforth, that will be the case every August. And tonight, we have our new Soul Food Education Initiative launching for the first time, too. You've heard a little bit about this over the past few months, where we're restructuring some of our, uh, the way we do classes and topics and things like that, because we wanted to focus on Sunday mornings, uh, focusing on, on people's spiritual maturity level by offering classes on a, a milkman and meat basis, so that you could choose which one is where you're at, spiritually speaking, and, and which one is the most digestible for you. But on Wednesday nights, we wanted to get a lot more practical. And so a lot of our classes on Wednesday nights are geared towards stage of life, but also practical application. The class here in the auditorium on this occasion is one of our how-to classes. Every Wednesday night, we'll have a how-to class. It won't always be in this location, and it won't always be this topic, obviously, but it will be a practical subject matter offered every Wednesday night, at least one. And tonight is how to study the Bible. We, we've been uh, contemplating this class for a long time because a lot of people uh, want to understand how to dig into God's Word at a deeper level than, than they, they currently do. And so the goal of this class this quarter is going to be to give you some practical instruction on how to engage with Scripture as a student of God's Word. Uh, we, we read about the Bereans. We read about how they were going back home after every lesson they heard from Paul, and they were studying the Scriptures to see if the things Paul taught were true. We want to emulate them. And one of the things that will help us emulate them is to better equip ourselves with the strategies, the, the techniques, uh, the skill sets for biblical study. Now, you're not going to dive too deep into that tonight. Tonight, we're going to focus primarily on the Bible in your hand. Because, because as we've talked about before, the Bible in your hand is an English translation of three other languages. Now, we did a study back in 2021 of how we got the Bible, how the Bible came into existence, particularly focused upon the New Testament. And in that study, we talked about the languages that the Bible comes in. Aside from the two Fried Hardman graduate and student in the back. Does anybody know what three languages the Bible was originally written in? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Now, the Aramaic one is very small portions, but Hebrew and Greek. Now, aside from the two Fried Hardman students in the back, how many of you know Greek and Hebrew? So you are relying upon a translation. And you need to be able to trust your translation, right? So tonight we're going to talk about our English translations. I did a class on this back in 2021 with the How We Got the Bible study. But we need to start off here because any biblical study you do requires the right tool. And that is the Bible in your hands, and in particular, that biblical translation. Let me uh, share with you this quote as we get started. 
The very fact that you are reading God's word in translation means that you are already involved in interpretation. And this is so whether one likes it or not. But to read in translation is not a bad thing. It is simply inevitable. What this does mean, however, is that in a certain sense, the person who reads the Bible only in English is at the mercy of the translator or translators. And translators have often had to make choices as to what, in fact, the original Hebrew or Greek was really intending to say. You see, you're involved in a process that can be influenced by the type of translation you're reading. It can be, your, your biblical study can be influenced by your translation. And so I want to spend some time tonight explaining, focusing, I should say, on four things you need to know about your translation. And then I'll break down the major translations. There are about eight major translations of the English Bible that circulate now as far as cells. And more than likely, I will cover every uh, type that we have in this room tonight by going over those eight, even though there are many more. But let's start talking about what you need to know when you're selecting the English translation you're going to use. There are four primary things to consider. Number one, you need to consider who it is that is translating it. Who is or who are the translators? See, each translation is either translated by an individual or a committee. You have some that are done by an individual. The two most prominent ones that were done by individuals are known as the Message and the Living Bible, both done by, by an individual and both fall in the category of really what's called a paraphrase, which we'll talk about in a minute. I doubt very many people in here are using these, trans, these translations, if you will. Most of the, the major, major translations of the, new, of the Bible into English are translated by a committee. That was a process, that was a, a translation strategy originated by the King James Version. That was the, really the first time an assembly of people were brought together to conduct translation. The King James Version innovated translation is what I'm saying. And why do you think it's important to have translation by committee rather than translation by individual? Any thoughts? You can eliminate biases and you can fact check each other. Accuracy is going to be improved when somebody else is looking at what you've translated and, and, and giving their thumbs up or thumbs down to it. It's just you can eliminate their, any prejudice, you can eliminate any doctrinal bias, and you can, be, you can ensure more accuracy. So when you're looking at a translation, and you can find this out, if you just look at the preface of the translation you're reading, it's going to tell you who did the translating. In fact, you can go to the website of many of the major translations like uh, the uh, New American Standard, the English Standard, uh, the New International Version. You can go to their websites. They will tell you who was involved in the translation process. They'll give you a list of the, the scholars that were involved. So you can look that up. So knowing who translated it does matter. And a committee is preferable over a single translator because the committee will tend to hold one another accountable to the standard of accurate translation. Now, the other thing you need to know about the translator or translators, you kind of need to know if they're associated with a particular denomination. Here's what I mean by that. Some translations are authored, are created by certain denominations. Most people don't realize this, but the King James Version was. The King James Version, the translators are all members of the Church of England. 
the Anglican Church. And so it has that kind of uh, uh, the, the theological bent to it based on what the Church of England believed. In addition to that, you've got a few translations, like the New Jerusalem Bible, or I can't remember what NAB stands for, but those were ordered by the Catholic Church, and so they have that kind of focus to them. The Holman Christian Standard Bible or the Christian Standard Bible, that was... Uh, um, I can't think of the word I was looking for right there. That was conducted by the Southern Baptist Convention through Lifeway Publishing. Uh, and so, though there are, I'll be talking about the Christian Standard Bible a little bit later, um, you, it just helps to know those sort of things. In particular, because you're going to encounter, encounter a lot of translations that, when you look closely enough, have a very Calvinistic doctrine to the way they translate. If you, one of the best ways to test that, and I'll show you it here in a minute, is to go to Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5. And the way that verse gets translated will tell you everything you need to know about if there's a Calvinistic background to this translation or not. So just knowing, knowing where the people came from that did this translation can help you understand if, there's going to be, if, if you need to be cautious about a theology or a doctrine within that translation. And here's the thing. Most of the modern translations, the major translations, will provide that in that list of the people who translate. They'll, they'll tell you where they're from. The NIV proudly boasts in its preface all the denominations involved in their translation. So uh, it's good to know that just so you can be uh, forewarned. It's really helpful to know that if you're getting a study Bible. Because study Bibles will provide those footnotes, will provide those guided information throughout it. And if you know what denomination they're coming from with those study notes, and this is aside from translation, but just those study notes, it will help you know what you're to be, in, in, be ready for, to be prepared for. You've got to be careful, especially with study Bibles. But uh, translations can have a theological bent to them, and it's, it's worth being uh, aware of that by knowing who the, it was involved in translation. But not only do you know, need to... Uh, here's that Psalm 51 and verse 5. Uh, here's the, one, two, the eight major translations I'm going to talk about. Three, six, seven, eight. Yeah, I did my math right. I'll start with the King James Version. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. New King James improves that language a little bit. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. New American Standard and uh, English Standard don't differ from that very much. And then you get to the NIV. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. New Living Translation, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. The CSB, the, the Christian Standard Bible. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And then the message, I've been out of step with you for a long time in the wrong since before I was born. We're going to have fun with the message tonight, just so you know. But you can see, particularly when you get to the, to the, to the NIV, you can see this trend towards more Calvinistic teaching. And with the New Living Translation and the Christian Standard Bible, it just blows up. And it's clearly got a Calvinistic initiative behind it. So it's worth being aware of that. Now, the other thing you need to know besides the translators is you need to know the source material. You need to know on what the translation is based. What I'm talking about is what Hebrew manuscripts and what Greek manuscripts are they using as the basis of their translation. And this does matter. Because you will, and we'll talk about why in just a second. But let's 
point this out. Each translation chooses a manuscript family, and I'm focusing right now on the Greek. Each translation chooses a manuscript family on which the text is based. Most of our translations that we uh, are familiar with today use the, the basic same textual origins for the, the Old Testament. The King James Version is the only one that stands out in that regard, and it's because it was so old it didn't have access to most of the manuscripts. Dead Sea Scrolls weren't discovered yet. And the Dead Sea Scrolls improved the translation of the Old Testament drastically. So, we're going to focus on the New Testament primarily with this. And I'd spent a lot of time in that class called How We Got the Bible, which you can access on our website. All those classes are uploaded there if you ever want to go back and listen to that. I spent a lot of time explaining the difference between manuscripts. But there are two major manuscript families you need to be aware of when it comes to the New Testament. The first is the Alexandrian text type. The Alexandrian textual family is comprised of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. And it's the primary basis for our current Greek New Testament, whether that be the Nestle Allen or the uh, United Bible Society's version of the New Testament. Here's what that means. The manuscripts that are the oldest, the ones that are closest to the first century, the closest to the original documents, which we have none of, those are the ones that comprise what is called the Alexandrian family of text type. And so oftentimes, oftentimes, that will be referred to as the critical text. Because it's, it's viewed as, hey, it's the, the oldest and therefore the best. And they call it, they'll call it the critical text. The translations that are based on the Alexandrian text type include the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the New International Version, and most others. The other family is the Byzantine text type family. This family of manuscripts sometimes is referred to as the majority text. That means that we have more of these documents of this type than any other. And that may make you think, oh, we should be following this one. Yeah, but most of them are like 1000 AD and on in their dating. Most of them don't go back close to the first century. With the Alexandrian family, we have, we have manuscripts from the second century. We have manuscripts from the, uh, the generation after the apostles. With the Byzantine, we're talking medieval ages are the primary arena for these manuscripts. So they're old. And the thing is, when it comes to manuscripts, the older they get, the more mistakes they can have. The older your manuscripts get, they can have more mistakes because does anybody know what year the printing press was made? I thought it was a little bit earlier than that, but hey, I could be wrong. But you got to think, printing press isn't that old. So what did they have to do to make copies before the printing press? By hand. Have you ever been copying something by hand and made a mistake? It's very easy. Your eyes can deceive you. It, it's very easy to make mistakes when you're handwriting notes. But that's the only way they could do it for centuries. And so, the older a manuscript is, the more likely it has been exposed to man-made mistakes. And so, while we do have a majority of texts from this family, they're not considered the best because they are so much newer to us. They're not as old as the other family. But this is also called 
the textus receptus, the received text. In other words, this was the text that was around when the King James Version was written. This was all they had access to. I'm going to show you something in just a minute. Let me see if that's coming up right now. Um, nope, don't have that yet. The King James Version was developed years before some of the most important manuscripts for Greek translation were even discovered. The, the King James Version was not wrong when it was written. It was using the best available data it had. It's just that more discoveries have been found to help improve our translating ability since then. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the other thing you need to know is that the New King James Version, which came along you know, just a few decades ago, it updated the King James, but it didn't change its source material. It still used this older, or this uh, inferior, I should say, uh, Greek manuscript source. Moving on, translations that follow the Alexandrian text type emphasize quality when it comes to their manuscripts over quantity. The Alexandrian family em emphasizes the age of the manuscripts over the number of the manuscripts. And the Byzantine text type family does the opposite. They emphasize the quantity over the quality. So it's, it, it, there's a decision being made by the, your translators as to which manuscripts they want to emphasize. And then a translation's choice of a manuscript family affects many different things, but one in particular is affects whether or not certain textual variances are included, omitted, or even acknowledged. Your King James Version will not acknowledge any textual variants like the ones you'll find in Mark chapter 16 or John chapter 8 or Acts chapter 8. I've got a list of them up there. These are our passages that your, your more modern translations are going to highlight. Your New King James is at least going to say something about them in the footnotes. Your New International Version is going to bracket them or, or, or put some sort of statement indicating that the, that's, that the older manuscripts don't show this part, don't include this part of the text, things like that. So you have an issue here of, uh, of passages that may not need to be in there anymore because the manuscripts that are the oldest don't support them. But the King James Version didn't know this when it was written. Anyway, that, that's the importance of your manuscript evidence. Now here's a timeline showing the... Um, Original Greek, let me back up. On the top part, ooh, I, got, I forgot I got a laser. This section up here shows the discovery of some of the most important Greek manuscripts when they were discovered. The colored spaces down here show the publication of Greek manuscripts. So, starting back here with Erasmus, that's when the Greek New Testament first got published for public consumption. And then you can see these dates of all these, this blue down here, Nestle Allen. That's, your, your, that's not the latest edition of it, but that's the uh, family of which our Greek manuscripts are based on now. Um, but you can see the key, King James gets published here, 1611. Well, guess what? Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus. I highlighted those because those are the three most important, three most important codices that have ever been discovered. And your New Testament translations depend on them more than just about anything else. And not one of them was found before the King James Version was even translated. The Revised Version, RV, Revised Version, is a revision of the King James ASV, American Standard Version, 
technically a revision of the King James. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But, but I want you to see this because I want you to see how the discovery of Greek manuscripts has influenced translation. And those discoveries didn't exist before the King James Version was translated. That matters. Now, moving on. When it comes to this subject matter, I want you to understand that just because you use the King James Version doesn't mean you're wrong. Just because you use the New King James Version doesn't mean you're wrong. If that's your preferred translation, use it. But I believe the best practice is to be cognizant of the difference that exists in the manuscript evidence and to compare or consult with another translation as you study just to make sure that there's no variations that need to be considered or uh, no, no issues that arise. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using King James or New King James. More souls have been saved, I would bet, by the New King James Version than any other English translation to date. There's nothing wrong with using either one. Just be wary that there are some uh, issues that maybe you need to, to consult another translation. If you pay attention to my preaching... My primary translation is English Standard, but I will utilize others. When I study, I use four translations to study with. English Standard Version, New King James, New American Standard, and New International Version. Because I want to see the comparisons, the contrasts. I, I want to be able to examine different ways in which words are translated and figure out which one's the, the, the best use of, of, or the best one to use. So, I believe in using multiple translations, no matter which one is your primary. Moving on, the other thing you need to consider, besides the translators, besides the translator's source material, is the translator's philosophy, their theory of translation. Because not everyone translates the same way. Here's what I mean. There are three primary ways that translators choose to go about transferring the Greek language into the English. The first is called formal equivalence. It just means word for word. The philosophy of this translation attempts to translate exactly what is said in the Greek into English, as close to the order in which it was said as possible. So this makes the um, translation maybe a little bit less readable, but a lot more literal. So those translations that, that utilize this strategy are really concerned about going word for word. They're trying to do the, as little interpretation ahead of time as possible. They want to leave that for you. And so the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, and the English Standard Version are really the four big ones that go with this approach. And this approach is, is, is favored. I would rather, though I did take Greek and Hebrew in college, I'm no expert. That was 20 years ago. I've forgotten more of it than I learned, which is not possible because how you can forget more than you actually learned anyway. But I like, I don't want my, my, my translation to dictate what I'm reading. I want to try to read as close to the original as possible. Now that does present issues. Here's John chapter 3 and verse 16. I've got the Greek in white and the English in yellow. The reason I've done this, and, and that English does not sound right. Because Greek could care less about syntax. The Greek does not care about having a subject and a verb and, and have, a, have it in this particular order. They will mix it up any which way. They, they don't care about syntax like we do. 
So if you try to take the Greek, the Greek words you see there and put them into some sort of English words, and, and, that, and the English that I put up there is not even the, a perfect, accurate use of each Greek word. But it's, this is the order in which the words appear in Greek. So now you take that Greek and you've got to transfer that into English. You can maintain most of the words, but you've got to restructure the order and things like that. So going word for word has its issues. You know, it really has its issues when it comes to things like idioms, like euphemisms, like things that are written in Greek, uh, phrases in Greek or Hebrew that don't have an exact corollary in English. We've really experienced that as ministers working with Mingu. There are things we will say that Mingu will have to get clarification on because he's like, that makes no sense. And there are things he will say we'll have to get clarification on because it makes no sense to us. We were at our minister's retreat a few years ago, and Mingu looked at, it was late at night. We had just gotten done with a long work session. And Mingu looked at, at the ministers and said, guys, I just want you to know I'm at my lowest point. And we're like, what, is he going to quit? And we're like, Mingu, what's wrong? What's wrong? He goes, nothing's wrong. Everything's great. That's what I'm telling you. And we were like, Mingu, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know how water flows downhill, and when it gets to, to the, its final resting place, it's at the lowest point because it always goes downhill? He said, that's where I'm at. I love it here. I am perfectly set. I'm where I need to be. I finally made it. We had no idea what he was talking about. Same thing happens in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, trying to transfer them into English. We, some of their euphemisms, when translated exactly word for word, can be complicated. And so that's why some translators have decided to go with something called dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence just means thought for thought. It's not literal word for word. It's this thought translated over into English in, in a similar thought. This philosophy doesn't focus so much on the original English, I mean, on the original Greek making it word for word as it does on trying to convey what the original author was trying to say. And so translations that employ the dynamic, uh, the dynamic equivalence thought for thought method are the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible. We'll show some uh, examples of this in just a moment. Then there's a third one called functional equivalence. Formal equivalence is word for word. Functional is, I've got liberty to do what I want. This philosophy of translation attempts to communicate the intent, not the thought, not the word, the intent of a passage in a way that is understandable to the reader. And it results in an interpretation being done, it results in the interpretation being done by the translator. This means that the translator is deciding what the passage means before you get the passage. We often refer to this as a paraphrase. Translations that employ this are the, the message, the living Bible, and the contemporary English version. Now let me show you the difference between word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. Word for word, using New American Standard Version. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. One thing I want to note here, the New American Standard Version and the New King James Version do something, if I'm not mistaken, they do something uh, useful. 
when a word is inserted by the translators that does not have an exact equivalent in the Greek, they usually put it in italics. So you can see the word already on the third line, and you can see the word by on the fifth line. There's not an exact Greek word that matches those. They're words they had to introduce to make the sentence make sense in English, but they kind of set them apart for you by putting them in italics. It's kind of helpful. Anyway, that's your word for word. Now going to thought for thought using the NIV. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What? Have this attitude in yourselves which is in your relationships with each other? Okay. Who, being in the very nature of God, or nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Something to be grasped. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You can see the differences that exist there, trying to convey thought instead of word. Now hold on. Here comes the message. And by the way, the message doesn't have verses like we're used to. It does it in clumps of paragraphs. And it'll say this, this paragraph encompasses verses 5 through 8. But, not, but no, no particular line is associated with verse 5 particularly. Think, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of a death at that, a crucifixion. Now, when you hear that, knowing what this passage says, you can make sense of all that. But notice how loose the language is. Notice how informal the language is. Notice how, how um, even in some of the, uh, the, what was the one I said? Where it says became human. It's like there's an emphasis in there that doesn't exist necessarily in the Greek. It's just, it's different. And it's a paraphrase. It's one individual saying this is what is meant by the passage. So that's the difference between word for word, thought for thought, and, uh, and paraphrase. And here's the thing. All translations fall somewhere on that spectrum. This is a diagram I pulled from the internet. I did not make it. But you can find many diagrams just like this that are pretty much the same, pretty much uh, say everything the exact same way. They might make some little changes and tweaks in the middle. But for the most part, every translation falls in the right area, no matter what diagram you go look for. And you can see there's word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. And you can find where your translation kind of lines up in there. And like I said, the, of the major translations that get used around here, the King James, New King James, and the English Standard and the New American Standard, and the New International Version, you can see they all, well, you, the first ones I mentioned are all word for word. NIV falls more of a thought for thought. And so this, you can find this kind of a diagram all over the Internet, and it's going to be just about equivalent. And here's what you need to understand. A word for word translation is always going to be preferable because you don't want anybody doing the interpreting for you because it's your job as a student to do that. And so a word-for-word -word translation is the most literal, a thought-for-thought -thought is the most readable, and a paraphrase is the most dangerous. And I recommend avoiding paraphrases, using thought-for-thought -thought occasionally, and consulting a word-for-word -word primarily. 
That's my suggestion and what I think is probably the best practice for the student of God's Word. There's also one other thing you need to consider, not just who the translator is or what the source material is or the philosophy of translation, but also the reading level. Let's be honest. We all have different reading capabilities. My reading level may not be the same as your reading level. I might be lower than you. you might, I might be higher than you. And every translation gets a reading level grade. Here's a chart that shows some of these. Some fall in the really low third grade range. The NIRV is the NIV's reader's version. It's made for children. And then you can go to the 12th grade level where you've got King James, American Standard, the original 1901 American Standard version, and the RSV, the latter two, which aren't really published as much anymore because uh, they've got newer ones. But you can see the New King James, the New American Standard, all on that upper level. And so if your reading level struggles, you might need to keep that in mind as you pursue a translation. You might need to consider uh, your, your capability in that regard. So it's worth knowing that because, let's be honest, the King James Version, I struggle with that because I don't speak Shakespeare anymore. You know, it's beautiful. It was written during a time of beautiful language, but there are sentences in the King James that I just don't comprehend because I, I don't read like that anymore. But then I can turn over to, I can go grab a, a, the message, or I can, really I can grab the, if you've ever read the New International Reader's Version, you just feel like it's so dumbed down that you don't gain anything. So just pointing that out, consider the reading level as well. Now let's talk about English translations with what time we have left. I'm going to work through these. Now the English translations did start appearing on the scene before the King James, but we're going to start with the King James because the King James became the widely used one and the most printed one. The King James Version was originally translated in 1611. It went through several revisions in the 1600s. But the King James Version that you have on your app or that you hold in your hands, that one came about in 1769. You don't have a 1611 King James. You wouldn't be able to read it. You have a 1769 King James. 75,000 different uh, or 75,000 revisions and detail changes from the 1611 version to the 1769 version. Just something to, for, you, for you to understand. When I, back in Pensacola, there were a few churches down there that boasted that they were 1611 KJV only, and I just sit there and thought, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You're 1769 KJV only. But the King James Version advanced translation so much because they were the first to bring about a committee of translators. And they were the, uh, uh, the first to consult the original languages. Prior to that, the English translations that did come about were using Latin translations, converting from Latin to, to English. They were, take, they were taking something that was translated from Greek to Latin and then taking that Latin to, to uh, English. So they weren't going to the original source material. King James Version changed that. And even though they, King James didn't have all the manuscripts available to them that we have today, they started that process of saying, we're going to go to the original languages and we're going to use a committee. So they advanced translation significantly, a large part of why it was, it's been so successful over the years. Also, it does have that philosophy of word for word. It does read at a 12th grade level. So those are the things that are worth mentioning. Let me show you some examples of the King James Version that, that are good and some that are complicated. First off, most of you know this, the model prayer. In fact, I imagine 
that for the vast majority of us, this is one of those passages that, that was memorized at some point. And if you memorized it, you probably memorized the King James Version. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy And you know what's so great about this translation, this version? Is it's such beautiful language. It's such reverential language. It's the lang- it is the language of Shakespeare. And that makes it so, um, it, it feels like we're holding God in such honor when we read this, this translation and when we use this terminology. You know, I don't, this, this, the King James Version even affected the way we prayed, the way we spoke to God with reverence. So the King James Version has some beautiful aspects about it. And, and when you look at the model prayer, it just pops with that reverence and that beauty. But then you can have a passage like Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. Anybody notice something that doesn't belong in that passage? I hope so, because I put it in yellow. That's the word for Passover. But for some reason, the King James translators decided to use the word Easter. Every other appearance of that Greek word, they used the word Passover. But in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, they chose Easter. Easter is a uh, pagan term that got substituted at some point and got associated with uh, the Sunday after Passover, the what could be called Resurrection Sunday. But it doesn't have its place. That, that Greek word does not mean Easter. That Greek word meant Passover. So you have little things like this that just don't belong. And then you have just difficult reading. This is Acts chapter 28 and verse 13. King James Version says, And from thence we fetched a compass and come to Regium, and after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Putuyelo, or whatever that last word is. Look at the, the other translations I put up here. We fetched a compass. When you hear that, doesn't that make you think, oh, they went and got a compass to figure out which way they need to go? But what it really means is we went around something. And it's just that archaic language has its hindrances to us at times. And you've probably encountered that before with the King James Version, where there's just some terminologies that just don't make sense in our culture. I am certain in 1600s, they understood what it meant when he said we fetched a compass. But for whatever reason, that, that doesn't resonate with us today. And so I do believe that when you're wanting to study God's Word, if you don't understand the English that you're reading, it's going to be a hindrance to you. So that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, we know the New King James Version was an update to the King James Version. The King James Version originated 1611, the final rendition of it that you have today, 1769. But in 1979, they decided it's time we revise it with more up-to-date English. And so that's where the New King James came from. It didn't get published until, um, what year was that, 1982, I believe, uh, with the, in its entirety. But 1979 is when they started it. And to my knowledge, I don't think it's undergone any revision since then. Now, here's the thing about the New King James Version. They kept some of the principles in place that the King James did. Over 130 scholars uh, from a broad spectrum of of Christian churches, different denominational backgrounds, were involved in this revision. But here's the thing. They They updated the Hebrew manuscripts they used for the Old Testament. To, the, to what's the modern now, but they didn't change their Greek manuscripts. They retained the, textus, the received text, the majority text, the 
not as old text. They kept using it for their New Testament. Unlike every other translation since then. They, they, they wanted to retain the same New Testament manuscripts that the original King James used. And so that's its one limitation. It maintains, it maintains that word-for-word translating process. It reads on a little bit easier level than the King James Version. And it uses the same principles of uh, translating by committee and using the original languages. It's one flaw is it didn't update its Greek manuscripts. But let me show you this. Going back to the Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 passage where Easter is mentioned in the King James Version, they made, that, they made corrections like that in the New King James Version. Made it much more useful, much more readable. I don't know what's going on there. Now let me show you another example, though. I want to show you readability. Sometimes the New King James Version doesn't have the, the readability of other translations. So here's Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, you, you understand that. that, means that I'm not saying that's a difficult verse to understand. You can read that. It makes sense to you. It's a lot better than the King James Version. But some of the structure is odd for English readers. So you take something like the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version, which I didn't use that one, but enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Instead of wide is the gate, the gate is wide. That's a more contemporary English reading, using the exact same words, just reorganizing the syntax. For the gate is wide and the way is easy, as opposed to broad is the way. And those who enter by it are many, instead of there are many who go in by it. It's just the structure. The, the words don't change much. The order of them does to make it a little bit more readable today. And so that's one, uh, one advantage of some translations over the New King James. But the New King James was the third most purchased English translation in 2011. It has dropped to the fifth most purchased in 2021. And while it's an improvement over the King James as far as its readability and inclusion, that's the, I didn't put this up there, it includes the textual variants. The places where, where the... Uh, uh, the Byzantine family of texts includes stuff that the Alexandrian family of texts don't. It makes note of that, which is an improvement over the King James as well. That, that is worthwhile. You'll find it in the footnotes. There's still something lacking at times, May, whether it's their, the Greek manuscripts or it's the, the readability. Sometimes those things are lacking, in my opinion. doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. It's still a good translation. You're still going to get your word-for-word understanding of the Scripture. So that's the New King James update on the King, which was the update of the King James into a more modern English. In 1901, the ASV, the American Standard Version, came out. Now, this was really just an Americanized version of the King James. The American Standard Version uh, was an update to the King James that used American English instead of British English. That was its ultimate goal. There were some improvements on the translation, but that, that's how it came into existence. And it became the second, only the second real English translation that people in the U.S. would use. You had the, think about this. You had the King James Version being really the only English translation that people in the U.S. had for 300 years. And then the American Standard Version comes along. And here's what's amazing. Those first 300 years, King James Version is all by itself. After 1950, you have this blossoming of translations available. But 1901, ASV comes along. 
they decide they need to update it. And so the ASV, the American Standard Version, still had some kind of archaic language to it just because it was written in 1901. And, and so in 1959, they decided, let's do an update. Come, then you come along to the New American Standard Version. The New American Standard Bible was first published in 1963. It underwent revisions in 1977, then in 1995. And 1995 is a really good translation, but they did another revision in 2020. And so actually, if you go to some websites for translations like BibleGateway.com, and you, put it, you can choose between the 1995 New American Standard Version or the 2020 American Standard Ver- New American Standard Version. You can choose between the two. So it's gone through some revisions. It's translated by a committee, a committee known as the Lockman Foundation. Um, their, their goal, you can go to their website and read about them. They, uh, they, their goal is to have an unbiased translation as much as possible. You can find a list of their translators. Uh, 42 translators were used in the 1977 update, 19 translators and four critical consultants for the 95 update, 12 translators, nine critical consultants for the 2020 update. Uh, their source material is, uh, is all the up-to-date manuscript evidence that exists for the, the Hebrew or the Greek. And, of course, their, their philosophy of translation is word-for-word word as well, 11th grade reading level, much like the New King James. Sometimes I find the New American Standard Version to be an easier read. I think Hebrews 3.13, it, it sounds easier than the New King James Version. But encourage one another today, every day, as opposed to but exhort one another daily. As long as it is still called today, instead of while it is still called, while it is called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. To me, I read the New American Standard Version, and that verse makes more sense in that translation than it does in the New King James. But then there are other times where I think the New American Standard Version is a little bit more difficult to read than other translations. Romans chapter 1 is my example. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That reads difficult to me personally, but I think the English Standard Version reads smoother. And so sometimes when I'm comparing translations, I, I prefer the smoother translation as opposed to the more uh, choppy uh, rendering. Let me, uh, the, but the New American Standard Version, or Bible, is widely regarded as the most literal translation of the Bible. It has dwindled in popularity, though, in recent years. In 2020, it was the 10th most purchased English translation, having fallen from 7th place just 10 years earlier. Uh, And by the way, the the King James Version, I didn't mention this. The King James Version is still the, I believe it's the second most purchased translation in the world. Uh, Now let's go to the English Standard Version, which, as you may know, is the one I use the most. English Standard Version actually is based built off of what was known as the RSV, the Revised Standard Version in 19, of 1946. You had the Revised Standard Version, and then they did an update to that in 1989. And then in 2001, they took the Revised Standard Version and created the English Standard Version out of it. English Standard Version is standalone technically, but it's built off of the Revised Standard Version to a large degree. And it's gone through its updates the last one being in 2016, and they received a lot of criticism in 2016 because they announced that the text of the ESV Bible will remain unchanged in all future editions at that time. They said in 2016, they said, here's our updated translation. We're never updating it again, no matter what evidence might be found. They received some significant backlash for that. So they retracted that policy, 
And they said, as evidence comes about, they will update now. Um, I was a little upset at them with that for that at, originally, but anyway. Translated by committee, you can view the committee online. Uh, it's based on the updated Hebrew and Greek manuscripts and so on. Its philosophy is word for word. They assign a 10th grade reading level to it. Uh, I don't really know how they assign the reading levels because to me, uh, when I, New King James, New American Standard, ESV, I think they kind of all fit in the same arena. Um, just for me, it's finding the preference of which one reads better, but who knows. Um, an example, let me give you an example text. I, I find this one to be more difficult in the ESV than the New King James, particularly in that phrase in verse 5. English Standard Version says, and hope does not put us to shame. New King James says, hope does not disappoint. I understand not being disappointed. I don't fully understand what it means here to be put to shame. So I find verses that where, even though English Standard is the one I primarily use, I still find verses that I'm like, that's not, that doesn't sound like the language I would use or that I understand as well. And so even it has its complications at times. Moving on to the New Living Translation, it's built off of one known as the Living Bible in 1971. Here's the thing. The Living Bible in 1971 was a one individual's paraphrase of the, of the Bible. And in, two, uh, in 1996, uh, the Living Bible was uh, created by the owner of Tyndall House Publishing. Tyndall House then brought together scholars from all, all over to, to update that one. But as they sat down with it, they're sitting down with a paraphrase, and they go, nope, we need a translation, not a paraphrase. And so they started work on a translation. And so it falls in the category of translation. It falls in that, in that, uh, it falls in that category of uh, dynamic equivalence where it's thought for thought as opposed to a direct word-for-word uh, -word translation. It does use the most recent or the, or the, the best manuscripts, uh, and it did have a committee involved. It, it reads on a sixth-grade level. It, that's what was kind of retained from the Living Bible. The Living Bible was a third-grade level. They increased it to sixth grade because it went from paraphrase to translation. I know our time is up, but let me finish with this one at least. Um, I want to show a couple, or at least one example here. The problem with the New Living Translation for me is you can see hints of Calvinism in it. Like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, in other words, because God chose you, you have obeyed Him. You obeyed him because God chose you. That is a Calvinistic teaching. You look at it in the English Standard Version. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ, Jesus Christ, for obedience. Not, you have obeyed him because of what he did, but what he did has caused you to obey. There's a difference there. And you can find more examples of that throughout the New Living Translation. With that, I'm going to wrap up, and we'll finish our study of the other translations next week and then launch into our, under, uh, our first uh, uh, examination of how to study the Bible once we understand the tool that we are going to be using, which is your, your English translation. Thank you for uh, bearing with me, and uh, uh, have a blessed evening and week. You are dismissed.